0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: What do you call having your grandma on speed dial? Instagram.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties.
0: You just got a joke from Corin Tucker of the band Slater Kinney. Yes. You can catch them at the Pitchfork Festival next month. Later, we chat with movie star Marion Cotillard. She just
2: debuted her new film, Macbeth, at the Cannes Film Festival. Also coming up, the duo behind the hit web series High Maintenance list their favorite creative couples, and one of the biggest selling musicians ever is here with etiquette advice, Kenny G. I know everything about everything. See, it
0: totally makes sense. Yes. Plus, we meet the creator of a quote, minimal nourishment restaurant simply
2: called a briefs and if that sounds familiar that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in February so cast your mind back to a time of snow shovels and valentines when as at any dinner party we started with small talk All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
3: Brian Williams has been suspended for six months. An Italian court finds the former captain of the Costa Concordia cruise liner guilty of manslaughter.
4: John Stewart announced last night that he would be stepping down from The Daily Show.
0: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is a columnist for VanityFair.com. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
5: I'm going to be talking about the scientific fact that we use more happy words than sad words. Really? That sounds nice. How do we know that? (laughs) Well, some scientists looked at words used in all kinds of things, like the New York Times, in tweets, in movie titles even, and found that overall more positive words are used than negative words. And there's a phrase that I like that is a usage invariant positivity bias. All right. (laughs) Yeah. So you can just throw that into any tweet you want. (laughs) Any any dinner party conversation. Oh, yeah.
0: Couldn't the bias be that people who can afford to go online and publish things are probably happier than, you know. (laughs) That's a fair point. (laughs) That's a fair point. People who can't.
5: So – I'm surprised. It is surprising. But actually, this is a confirmation of an old theory called the Pollyanna hypothesis, which is from like the 60s that that people tend to, like Monty Python instructed us to do, look on the bright side of life. All right. Yeah. So this is kind of what they're calling a big data confirmation of this hypothesis.
2: That's interesting. But this is for
5: all languages? This isn't just English? Yeah. They were surprised to find that it's true of all languages. But there is one language that is the happiest. All right. Let's hear it. And that is Spanish. Oh yeah. well, that makes yeah, well, sense. You know, warm climates, ham, siestas. <laughs> yeah, siestas. I think that's the big one. But unfortunately, Chinese is the least happy. Well, smog. Right. Yeah. Right. But pandas. You would think would. I up think the pandas quotient. probably floats it up pretty you know, <laughs> right. higher than it would be.
0: Well, I'm not going to say anything negative because I don't want to bring down America's happiness level. The American
5: language. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So
0: I will just say, Richard Lawson. Thanks for the small talk.
5: <laughs> Thank you.
2: And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. It's our mildly peaty history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Back in 1864, a machine was patented that helped everyone smile a little brighter. Especially the guy who earned a ton of money off it. Yeah. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
3: Charles Forster made millions out of little pieces of wood. It was the mid-1800s, and Charles, a Bostonite, was working for his uncle's company in Brazil, where he couldn't help but notice that the locals were really into using toothpicks. These weren't the splintery toothpicks folks would whittle for themselves back in the States. These were smooth, high-quality numbers, hand-carved and imported from Portugal. Charles' idea? Get a machine to mass-produce similar toothpicks and sell them cheaply around the world. Not being an engineer, Charles bought the patent rights to someone else's machine to do the job. It was designed by a guy in Boston to cut wood into pegs, which were used in making shoes. Charles and a mechanic friend adapted it to cut the pegs smaller and thinner, and voila, the first machine-made toothpicks. Only problem? Boston store owners didn't believe people would buy something they could just carve off a twig. So since there was no apparent demand for his product, Charles created some. He hired a team of kids to barge into stores and clamor for his toothpicks. Then later, Charles would stop by and find the owners more than willing to stock a few boxes. Charles did the same thing with restaurants, paying Harvard students to demand toothpicks after their meal. Eventually, chewing on a toothpick became a status symbol, implying you dined at a fancy eatery. And soon, Charles had to launch a mill in Maine to keep up with demand. It stayed in business for over a century. At its peak, it churned out over 15 million toothpicks a day.
2: So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. On the line is Naomi Levy. She is bar manager at Eastern Standard Kitchen in the city of Boston, where Charles Forster popularized his machine-made toothpicks. Naomi, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire you to make?
1: I was inspired to make a drink that we're calling Forster's Mills.
2: His Mills. Interesting.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's actually a take on an old Boston classic called the Ward 8, made with rye whiskey, grenadine, lemon juice, and orange. Juice.
2: Okay, so that's the word eight, and then you're going to change some of those ingredients for this drink? We
1: are replacing a couple of these ingredients. So we're Instead of using rye as our base, we're using something called cachaca. Fun to say, right? It is. It sounds like <laughs> something
2: you'd find in a tea room or something. What is that?
1: So, cachaca is in the rum family. It's the national spirit of Brazil. Oh, wow. So, if Charles had a drink down there while he was getting <laughs> his inspiration, that's probably what he was drinking. Um, the so nice thing is
2: you don't have to use a toothpick to pick booze out of your teeth it just occurred to me
1: i hope not oh That's my goodness nice. <laughs> you don't want to drink you need a toothpick afterwards for but you know well, bloody mary after, maybe after, Maybe bloody mary but after a nice meal you know there's nothing like a nice drink and a toothpick there you go you know?
2: all right so cachaça and then what
1: else yeah you so um cachaça and then instead of grenadine we made a port syrup port coming from portugal oh, um yeah. which is also where brazil got toothpicks from, mixing that with equal parts sugar to make a syrup to add a little more richness to the drink.
2: Does it have a garnish?
1: It does not have a garnish. How can you
2: not have a garnish with a toothpick in it?
1: Well, I know, I know. (laughs) Because when you pour it out, the port and the orange juice creates a foam on the top. And it's just so pretty, we didn't want to interrupt that with anything else.
2: Okay, but I'm just going (laughs) to urge people when they make this at home to, I don't know, put something in there.
1: Well, I think you could just you know give it a little swirl with a toothpick and then Actually, your toothpick will taste so good.
2: That's acceptable. And, Brendan, fun fact, toothpicks kill a surprising number of people. Oh, no. It, oh, yes. Apparently, the writer Sherwood Anderson swallowed one. He died of peritonitis. And that may have been what killed Warren G. Harding.
0: So That's on true. second thought, no toothpick garnishes ever.
2: Yes,
6: Right.
0: Don't do Fish it Fish out that olive with your fingers, people Please, for safety And actually, we have plenty of drinks without garnishes at
2: our website It's dinnerpartydownload.org And now the guest list in which interesting people list interesting things.
0: And today our guests are husband and wife Ben Sinclair and Katya Blickfeld, creators of the web series High Maintenance. The show is a collection of shorts about different New Yorkers whose only link is an unnamed marijuana dealer played by Ben, High Maintenance. It's been called the best TV show not on TV. Here are Ben and Katya with their
4: list. My name is Ben. This is my wife Katya. Hello. Katya and I do everything together together. We live together, we eat together gluten-free toast and eggs every morning, and we create this show together. There are those lucky few who get to have the same experience as we have, and we want to point to some of those. So here's our list of creative couples who've been able to balance marriage and creativity to great effect.
7: I love Lucy. The first couple that came to mind was Lucy and Desi Arnaz. I am a huge fan of I Love Lucy. We have our quarrels, but then, no, how we love making up again? There was a lot of passion in that relationship, for better or for worse. I don't think it's a secret. I think everybody knows how tumultuous their relationship was, but it was also extremely productive. I mean, they made television history. They really are sort of the
4: pioneers pioneers of of the sitcom. There was even a point where uh, Desi really wanted Lucy to be pregnant on the show. I think she,
7: wasn't she actually pregnant, maybe? Yeah, and he
4: wanted to show a pregnant
7: woman. That wasn't something that previously had been done. You couldn't even say the word pregnant.
8: Oh, it's cold outside.
7: Hi, did you get everything? Yeah, I got everything. But if you don't stop
8: having these silly cravings at four o'clock in the morning, I'm going to freeze to death. (laughs)
9: Here.
8: This pistachio? Yeah, that's pistachio. Now pour that right on top of this. But honey, these are sardines.
4: <laughs> As a creative couple, I can tell you for certain that having just another opinion that you really dearly hold on to without question is extremely helpful. Desi said something that was really nice uh, in his autobiography later on. He said it's not called I Love Lucy for nothing. <laughs> Another couple that we were kind of thinking of is a, a writer couple named Alexander and Anne Schulgen. Alexander and Anne Schulgen wrote a very controversial book called Pikhal.
7: It's an acronym and spelled P-I-K-H-A-L, right?
4: No, P-I-H-K-A-L. <laughs> Thank
7: you. It stands for?
4: Phenethylamines I Have Known and Loved. The first half is a chemical love story between Alexander and Anne and how they came to know one another. And the second half is a cookbook of all of the psychedelic drugs that Alexander Shulgin developed in his long history as a maverick chemist.
7: One thing I like about the first half of the book is there's sort of a he-said-she-said element to the way that it's written. You're reading about their life through both of their words individually.
4: It could easily have been just his uh, chemistry textbook he was open enough to realize that she was a prime motivator, and it made the work that much better.
7: There's a film called Best Friends from 1982. It was written by Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin, who at the time were a married couple. And they actually divorced the year the film was released. The film stars Goldie Hahn and Burt Reynolds. They start out just a couple, screenwriters unmarried but the Burt Reynolds character really wants to get married and so they elope and then they go and meet each other's families for the first time that proves to be very challenging
4: yeah they're facing a deadline their whole trip which is basically the bulk of our relationship (laughs) yeah it's just being somewhere with a deadline hanging over us. sure
7: and they get called back to LA to do some rewrites and by the time this happens they're at each other's throats they don't really want to work together and their, their producer basically locks them in a room and says finish it
6: i'm going crazy I mean, i'm gonna go crazy in here you want me to tell him You want me to tell him we can't write two lousy pages i'll tell him larry we can't write two lousy pages there i told him you feel better
3: yeah now all of a sudden you know just what to say don't you You've just got all the words to put together now
6: what's that supposed to mean
3: that means for the last 14 hours you have not contributed one thing to this scene
4: we obviously felt connected to the struggles of that relationship because the right thing to say as a writing partner is not always the right thing to say as a spouse.
7: Not to end our list on a down note, well, but, but God, there are a lot of ups and downs. I think that seems to be a hallmark of a lot of uh, creative couples.
4: Even as I was reading about Lucy and Desi today, I was just like, okay, watch out for this, this, and this. The guest list from Ben Sinclair and Katja Blickfeld. Their
2: web series High Maintenance is available at Vimeo.com and it looks like the best TV show not on TV will be on TV. The next six episodes will appear on HBO.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, Oscar-winning movie star Marion Cotillard. This is
2: The Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should tell you this is an encore broadcast of an episode
0: we first aired in February. Coming up, the multi-platinum soprano saxophonist Kenny G will be here to help make your hard etiquette problems easy. Very And after that, we chat with the creator of a
2: restaurant designed to leave you hungry. Mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's French movie star Marion Cotillard. She's best known to U.S. audiences for her roles in blog blockbusters like Chris Nolan's Inception. She won an Oscar for playing Edith Piaf in La Vie en Rose. And June 10th, she opens in the stage show Joan of Arc at the Stake at Lincoln Center in New York. But in February, I spoke to her about her latest Oscar-nominated movie role in the movie Two Days, One Night by the great Belgian filmmakers the Dardenne Brothers. Mm. Marion plays Sandra, who returns to her factory job after battling depression only to find her workplace is holding a vote about whether she should keep her job. If her co-workers vote to fire her, they'll all get a thousand euro bonus. Sandra has one weekend to convince them each to vote for her. When we spoke, I asked why the role appealed to her.
9: Well, first of all, I I never expected the Darden brothers, who I admire so much, would want to work with me because they usually work with Belgium actors. That's right. And when I read the script, it it made sense for me to be part of this project because uh, of the questioning that I've always had about how our society creates isolation and uh, push people to think that they're useless, they're worthless.
2: Why is that such an important issue to you? Because that is, it's true, at previous film you made the immigrant touches on similar issues
9: well because i think if we are on earth there's a reason and i think it's really our society uh that created this i don't think in like uh, indian tribes they question their place in their society Mm -hmm. and i've always been interested in what we create society has created needs uh that turns us against each other everybody to just show solidarity and look at each other i think we would live in a much better world
2: actually this speaks to something that i noticed while watching the film every time your character sandra visits a coworker and tries to convince them to vote for her to keep her job particularly the people who are thinking of voting against her they always ask how is everyone else voting And it feels to me like the message is, you know, if enough people opted to help their fellow men, everyone would follow suit.
9: Yeah, of course. I mean, deeply inside, we're all good people. And then a lot of things take us away from this connection of love that we all have when we come to this world. And sometimes it doesn't take much to uh, reconnect this link of love.
2: It is such a beautifully simple idea, this story. It's basically the same scene enacted over and over of this desperate woman arguing for her job with a succession of people. But that's also a risk, right? It can get boring and rote. And I was never bored while watching it. And I'm, I was trying to figure out why.
9: Yeah, well, I, when I first read the script, I saw that uh, it would be a challenge to create something different each time. Because, uh, yes, she she goes to see all those people and say almost the same thing. But then in this almost... I saw all the differences when she uh, gained confidence, when she loses it. And uh, I really worked on all those uh, little differences to keep it alive.
2: What would you do, I wonder, if you were one of Sandra's low-income co-workers faced with this decision?
9: Uh, Well, you know, there's something that I love in this movie is there's no judgment. All those people she goes uh, to see they're not bad guys. They've chosen their bonus because they really need it. And she knows it going to see them. It's really hard for her to go and see them because she knows what it means, uh, a thousand euros. Of course, the question came to my mind and I questioned myself, but then this is kind of hard to compare. I mean, I come from a family where uh, there are a lot of factory workers and uh, people that are uh, sometimes struggling with finding money, but there's Nothing in, in, in my life that can be compared to her situation. I was never in that situation where I struggled to feed my kids. So, of course, I would say, of course, I would have given my bonus, but...
2: It's not so easy.
9: It's not so easy.
2: A little more of a frivolous question. This is your second Oscar nomination? Yes, yes. Is it actually fun if you are nominated to be at the Oscars? You won your first time. I'm sure that part was fun, but I remember reading a David Mamet essay where he said the whole thing is basically a chance for regular folks to see stars squirm for a change. <laughs> <laughs> I...
9: Well, I'm I, I'm not I'm not stressed. I. I it puts a light on, on this uh, Belgium movie I'm so proud of. So um, I'm not, no, I'm not stressed at all. You
2: know, maybe it's okay to squirm.
9: Yeah, it's okay. All
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. Yeah. And the first one is pretty straightforward. I may have just asked it, actually. What question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, are you tired of being asked?
9: Um... What is the difference between French or European cinema and American cinema?
2: (laughs) <laughs> really? Yeah. They both involve cameras. But... Yeah.
9: But there's uh, there's as much difference between two American movies, uh, let's say, from uh, Woody Allen and Chris Nolan, <laughs> and then between two French movies, uh, Jacques Audiard or uh, Jean-Pierre Genet. I mean, what is amazing in this job is that every movie is unique. Every director
2: is unique. Well, actually, this maybe leads well into our second question, which is usually, tell us something we don't know. but I'm actually a big fan of the Darden brothers and I'm I think a lot of people in the states are not familiar with them maybe you could tell us something unique about them?
9: Well, they're geniuses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what was interesting when I started working with them, like the first and the second day, they would talk about the audience all the time when sometimes on a set and for some directors the audience word is like a bad word sometimes. It's like a four-letter word. Yeah. They
2: have this grand artistic vision and the audience is disdained.
9: Yeah, yeah. But they always talk about the audience and I thought that was uh, kind of a relief because we do uh, movies for them. We tell them stories, the three of us, because we love human beings.
2: Marion Cotillard, she stars in the Darden Brothers Two Days, One Night. And Brendan, the film may sound like a downer and there there are harrowing moments, but I found it ultimately very humane and uplifting. I feel like people shouldn't be afraid to check it out.
0: And by the way, I would never vote for you to lose your job. Oh thanks, so, man. Yeah. It's kinda of deep.
2: So now you can give me a thousand dollars. That's that's not how it works.
10: Time to eavesdrop.
0: For 15 years, Kelly Link's magical realist stories have earned comparisons to Kafka, the brothers Grimm, and Alice Munro. She's won a slew of fantasy literature awards and the O'Henry Prize. Today, we overhear her read from her latest collection.
10: Hi, my name is Kelly Link. I have a book of short stories called Get in Trouble. They are stories about people with poor impulse control. I'm gonna read from the beginning of a story called The New Boyfriend, which is about four teenage girls at a birthday party, and one of them is being given a special present, which is a life-sized animated supernatural boyfriend to go with her two other life-sized supernatural animated boyfriends. Ainsley doesn't rip open presents She's always been careful with her things, even the things that don't matter. Emmy is a ripper, but this is not Emmy's present, not Emmy's birthday. Sometimes Emmy thinks that this may not be Emmy's life. Better luck next time around, Emmy, she tells herself. Ainsley scores under the tape with a fingernail, then carefully teases the pink wrapping paper out from under the coffin-shaped box. Ainsley's new boyfriend is in there. Ainsley's birthday this year is just Ainsley and her bestest, oldest friends. Just Ainsley, Sky, Ellen, and Emmy. No family allowed. Earlier there was sushi and cake and lots of pictures to put up online so that everyone will know how much fun they are having. No presents, Ainsley said. But of course, Emmy and Ellen and Sky bring presents. No one ever means it when they say that. Not even Ainsley, who already has everything. It's normal to want to give your best friend something because you love her, because you want her to know that you love her. It isn't a competition. Ainsley loves Ellen and Emmy and Skye equally, even if Emmy and Ainsley have been friends longest. Emmy's heart isn't as big as Ainsley's heart. Emmy loves Ainsley best. She also hates her best. She's had a lot of practice at both. They're in the sunroom. As if you could keep the sun in a room, Emmy thinks. Well, if you could, Ainsley's mother probably would. But the sun has gone down, the world is night, and it belongs to all of them, even if it belongs to Ainsley most of all. Ainsley's brought out dozens of pillar candles, a small forest of mirrored candelabras, both of her old boyfriends. They both wear little party hats because that's the thing about boyfriends, according to Ellen. You can't take them too seriously. Of course, anyone can have an opinion. Emmy has plenty. In her opinion, in order not to take a boyfriend seriously, you have to have a boyfriend in the first place, and only Ainsley has one. Two. Three. Vampire boyfriend Oliver and werewolf boyfriend Alan lounge on candy stripes to tease and gaze with identical longing at their girlfriend Ainsley. Emmy decides against having a second piece of cake. One piece of cake really ought to be enough for anyone. And yet, there on the floor right under the cake. The new boyfriend has been waiting all this time. It's dark inside the box, of course. Night wrapped up in pink paper. Are his eyes open or closed? Can he hear them talking? Love will wake him. Love, oh love. Terrible, wonderful love.
0: Kelly Link, reading from her story, The New Boyfriend. It appears in her new collection, Get in Trouble. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
2: And now it's time for the main course where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, the food.
0: And Rico, one of the most buzzed about restaurants in the U.S., doesn't even exist.
2: Oh, great. Yeah, it's so hip. It is literally impossible to get a reservation. That's right.
0: Well, actually, that's kind of the point here. I'm talking about a parody website for an imaginary restaurant called Abreves, that's short for abbreviations. It's a very small plate eatery serving dishes like quote raven ball. That would be a teeny ravioli and a teeny meatball. (laughs) Uh, And the consensus in the food world is that it nails exactly what's precious (laughs) about a certain kind of restaurant. The site was created by Austin, Texas-based comedian Danny Palumbo. When we spoke, I asked what inspired it.
8: My brother and I are really opinionated about food, uh, and uh-huh. <laughs> myself almost, almost in a very obnoxious way. <laughs> I see dining trends, and I'm like, "What the hell is this about?" So uh, we had a mutual friend on Facebook who's a chef post a picture of something called a deconstructed BLT, and then it was a it was a it was a long <laughs> it was a long square plate that had pork belly, uh, grilled heirloom tomato, and romaine lettuce. And I was like, "This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen," and. Uh, so my brother and I were just talking about, like, all these different food trends and how, like, pretentious they are. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I, I had this idea. I was like, you know, we should hone it into, like, one single idea and do, like, a fake website for it. We were like, you know, small plates are a thing. Let's just miniaturize food uh, and also kind of make fun of how people are abbreviating everything. Like, people come into, you know, can I get a pinot grigio or some Tox instead of tacos and <laughs> pinot grigio? And it's, it's damn infuriating. So <laughs> we just... Uh, we decided to, to to go
0: that route. I want to take a moment to read the Abreves mission statement from your website. Abreves is another one of our heavily financed concept restaurants. At Abreves, we serve abbreviated versions of food. <laughs> Each dish is less than a bite, not even a morsel. a minimal <laughs> A minimal nourishment restaurant with a focus on leaving you still hungry. The hope is to create an entirely new dining experience where the eater is only somewhat satisfied, but thoroughly intrigued. <laughs> now, satire, part of the reason it works is because there's truth embedded in it. Have you had this experience at a, at a fine dining restaurant? You no, know, not myself.
8: I haven't. I mean, I feel like people will eat at a, an expensive restaurant, have no idea what they're eating, but leave being like, wow, that was really good, and they have no idea why. <laughs> it could be awful, and they have, like, no idea. You know, we're, the idea is that we're pretentious restaurateurs. You know what I mean? We're, we're, we're very misguided uh, idiot chefs. Yeah.
0: But you you so this website's parodying a couple of things. You're parodying food culture yeah. and more directly restaurant websites. First let's talk about the food culture. You're you're sending up small plates um mm-hmm. and you have pictures of bite-sized food items like the micro-micro green salad, any yeah. um, e. chow, which is an abbreviation for New England clam chowder, and it's a picture of a tiny piece of onion and, like, one clam. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite food item on this menu? As far as the one that looks the best, I think any e. chow was something my brother did.
8: Uh, I always look at that one, and I'm like, man, that just looks, like, Beautiful. Right? I, I don't know it looks like really good to me.
0: Well it's not really chowder though it's it's supposed to be I think the soup but I don't think there's any liquid in the photo. Right. uh there is a there is a there is a tiny dollop of cream on top of that
8: slice of onion that I guarantee is there that uh, <laughs> my brother my brother made sure to put on there
0: so when I go to restaurants like this you know kind of small plates oriented restaurants I'll sometimes get a slice of pizza afterwards just to satisfy my hunger. I was just thinking after eating because we, we we got oysters
8: today and mm-hmm. I had uh, I had a piece of fish. And uh, I was like, "That was good," but like, I saw a hot dog stand on the way here, and I was like, "I could just, I could just pound two hot dogs right now,
0: and uh, and be yeah. good to go." And then it, that's only two dollars on top of your hundred dollar tab, so that's it, you, you right? Full meal. So the other part of restaurant culture you're sending up with this website you have you have uh, there's links on the top. Sup is the about page. That's S U P, yeah. short for what's up. Crumbs is the food page, and then yeah. one of them is tats, and this is yes. just a chef. With you, I guess—is that you? That's me. Yeah, yeah. With all these crazy tattoos that say like "I'm a chef" on your fingers. Yeah. So, what's your theory? Why do you think chefs get so many tattoos? I don't know. I mean, what Anthony Bourdain always
8: called—you know—chefs uh, like misfits. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and also,
8: I mean, let's just call it what it is. Most chefs and cooks are just like degenerates that like, you know, <laughs> uh, drink a lot and and do drugs. I mean, that is that is completely that's completely true.
0: I'm not Um, laughing in agreement, but um, the other thing you're sending up in this are food websites. You know, food websites, we had a guy on here a few years ago who did a parody of a food website, and his parody was based on how Baroque they were, how hard it was to find the address. You know, you would go to a website and it would play music uh, yeah. And it would be all these photos and these elaborate, oh. ma- but you couldn't find, like, the location. Um, <laughs> Funny. And then the stripped-down website has become more the norm, which you've s- sent up here with a briefs. What is a restaurant supposed to do that doesn't make it right for parody?
8: Okay. This is becoming kind of an issue now, too, uh, back home in Austin. But those websites are kind of, uh, they're direct rips from pop- uh, popular restaurants in Austin that this guy owns. Uh, uh, and I love I love his spots, by the way, Parkside and and Olive and June. But I oh, think yeah, th- Finn. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he's a little bit upset, but, uh, you know, whatever. But it's, uh, I, I kind of like the way that looks. It's just really simple. I like it being stripped down. Yeah. Um, you know, don't have, like, a PDF menu that you can download. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to download <laughs> and then, you know, right? I think that's a <laughs> yeah, good... Yeah, it's too
0: complicated.
8: Although the the chef, I think his name is Sean Serkiel, does an Olive in June, his website on that, uh, his bio is like, seven pages
0: long and I'm like who is reading this before they go to the restaurant like, I really want to yeah. get to know this guy I like how on the abreaves the address is 5001 airport boulevard Austin mm-hmm. Texas it gives the hours and then it says no parking yeah forget <laughs> it you're gonna have to walk here and uh and then we throw you out on the street Danny Palumbo the comedian behind the parody restaurant abreaves you can see a picture of him with the tattoo, I am a chef, across his knuckles
2: at aBreavesRestaurant.com. And by the way, Danny's also responsible for the food parody site Little Buco, That is a fake fine dining establishment for children, featuring, among other things, sous-vide pop-tart with cereal-infused milk. Uh, it's fun for the
0: whole wealthy family. Blast, Folks, coming up, musician Kenny G answers your
2: etiquette questions the only way he knows how. Smoothly, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new song
0: from power popper Michael Cronin. Plus, we'll speak with neuroscientist David Linden about the sense of touch, including the sexy kind. Ooh. But first, it's time to study the science of good behavior, a.k.a.
2: our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Kenny G., His smooth saxophone sounds have sold over 75 million records. That makes him one of the best-selling musicians of all time and the biggest-selling instrumental musician of the modern chart era. He has just released a new album, his 14th full-length. Did we count right? Is that right? I have no idea, actually. It's something like 14. (laughs) Okay, good. Over a dozen. We'll say 14. Called Brazilian Nights. And Kenny, thank you for joining us, sir.
0: Thank you very much. So, Kenny, before we get... To the new album, you know, in researching your career, we came across this. No. Your first job when you were still in high school was playing for Barry White. That's Dang. correct. That was my only job. What, what is it like being a teen and working with this king of oversexed 70s soul music? <laughs> <laughs> is, where's the answer in the question? <laughs> is, that, is that
6: is that what he's known as? I well, think so. around our office. Well, you know, listen, I was so young and so green. I was 15 years younger than anybody else. I mean, I was just... Didn't even know what to do with myself. But I, d- I will give you a Barry White story. Years later, okay, yes. years later, I'm at the Soul Train Music Awards. P- probably the only white guy within like 10 miles <laughs> of the building. And I'm getting, I've got an award. I got a Soul Train Music Award, which was obviously very flattering. Yeah. So I'm in the bathroom, and there comes Barry White into the restroom in the men's room. And he's sitting there at the, at the mirror, washing his hands or something like that. And I'm looking, I'm going, man, I mean, he. first of all, I didn't meet him when I was 17. Yeah, I didn't meet him, no. I'm just like one of many people, so he didn't know anything about me. But I'm thinking, you know, my name's popular enough, so I'm sure probably I'm Barry White's radar at least. Yeah. So I walk yeah. up to him and I go, Barry White, you know, you know, if it wasn't for you and you were my first gig and I was in high school and all this stuff, he looks at me and he goes, hey, that's great, baby, hand me a paper towel. <laughs> And that's it. That was that was my Barry White ex- experience. 75 million albums, but that was the highlight
2: of your career right there, wow. right? That was one of the memorable moments of my career. All right, well,
0: let's let's, let's turn me, to this record.
2: Yeah, first of all, it's called as we mentioned Brazilian Nights. Right. We want to believe that it was either recorded or conceived at night in Brazil. Oh, yeah. well,
6: I That's You know, it. I've been to Brazil a few times, and, and, and nothing would please me more than to say yes, but I just lo- I love Bossa Nova. I love the rhythm. I loved how the old uh, jazz greats used to do their style of Bossa Nova, which was cool jazz changes, yes. but still that sexy rhythm. Same so I, I recorded about five of the original st- stuff from that uh, 60s, yeah. and then I wrote five originals of my own. And it's it's, you know, if you like that vibe... The whole record's that vibe.
0: Well, that's the thing. We have musicians come through each week, and they often give us dinner party song suggestions, and Bossa Nova has been coming up again and again recently. What's great
6: about Bossa Nova is that you can listen to it like very, very intently because it's complicated with the certain changes and all that, or you can just let it ride and let it just give you a, a, a vibe. But it's not so sleepy, so it's not like so Muzak, Muzak-ish. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, I don't even like the word smooth jazz, but it's because what it's turned into... Really? Uh, is so diluted these days. I can't even stand to listen to some of that stuff because it's just so generic. What do you think has changed? What, well, I just think that okay, this is going to sound like I'm a big <laughs> but I'm not actually. I'm not. But I right. let's say there should be let's say 25 artists making that kind of music. There's 200 artists making that music. Hmm. Oh, I see there's what you're so many and they're honestly they're okay. The music's okay. And it kind of solves the problem of having some background music to just be okay with. Do you with. think it's easier to hide in that genre, Kenny? Uh, absolutely. A lot easier, mm-hmm. way easier. You just put a little, a little groove in the background, play a few <laughs> uh-huh. notes on the sax. And, and you know, the tone doesn't even have to be that good. If I put that on, I won't really have to listen to it and it'll just kind of sit there, soothe me. So when I, when I'm talking about bossa Nova, it's not so just sitting there generically being okay. It's, it's, it's got a lot more depth to it. Yeah. All right. But unfortunately, Kenny, it seems like a
2: lot of our listeners are in need of soothing. <laughs> They've sent in etiquette questions for you to answer. Are you ready for these? I, I'm the expert, man. I am the all expert. I'm right. not <laughs> I know everything well, about everything. Then let's
0: begin. Uh, I think you definitely know that this first question. Yes.
2: This was sent in by JR in Los Angeles. JR writes I am all for an awesome instrumental solo in a bigger piece. That I think when a solo goes on too long, it feels awkward for me. And I would guess it's awkward for the bandmates too. As a music guy, how do you end a solo or make someone end it?
6: Aha. Hmm. Good question. Um, I have been known to play long solos. We should note, you have the Guinness (laughs) record for the longest sustained (laughs) note in saxophone history. 45
2: minutes, I think.
0: I wouldn't
6: call that a solo, but yeah, it's a long note. But I did it for the purpose of setting a world record, so... Still, I I feel like maybe you're the wrong guy to ask this (laughs) That's right, I am the wrong guy. What happens is when I'm playing a solo at my shows and I'm done and I want to go to the next thing, I just give a look to the piano player who was my high school friend. So he's seen me look at him a lot, you know, for decades. (laughs) I just give him a look and it's like, okay, we're, we're going to the next thing. But the guys in my band, you know, they I just let them solo as long as they want. Actually, they they cue me when they're done with their solos.
2: In any genre of music, what's the greatest solo on anything that you remember?
6: Well, let's see. I would say that John Coltrane's Giant Step solo is probably one of the most famous saxophone solos ever. Cuz nobody can play that solo. This is just a one once in a lifetime solo. It's amazing. But could he play one note for 45 minutes though? No. No, actually, no. That's my thing. I got that down.
2: All right, so we have another
0: question. This one comes from Chris in San Ramon, California. Chris writes, I dine out with a specific group of girlfriends several times per year. I love their company until it's time to pay the check. They are terrible tippers. Uh, I have on several occasions left extra cash on the pile of money as I was walking out, but I don't want them to be offended by seeing me pad the tip. Thoughts?
2: Oh, so she has to like toss an extra to make up for her girlfriend's well, cheapness.
6: first of all, you know, if they're your girlfriends, you talk to them about it, and yeah. you tell, and you agree on the tip going into the dinner. If you're gonna, if you're really gonna do it correctly,
9: yeah. and if they okay.
6: fight you on it, then you say, okay, well, I, I'm gonna give more than you guys. And I'm not trying to look like a hero, but I just want to do that. What is the, yeah, it shouldn't be a big deal. And if but, it is, if that is a deal breaker, then get a new set of friends to go out with. Seriously. And yeah. that is,
2: I, I don't think that this is a minor thing, frankly. I think it does say something about you as a person in our society where it's just like, I don't care about the people who serve me.
6: My tips are ridiculously high. I hope so. They're way too well, high.
0: I don't know, Kenny. We'll see what you give us when this segment's <laughs> okay. over. All right, well, good. But do sure. I understand correctly? You, you have your saxophone with you in the studio? It's, it's in its case. Yeah, I can pull it out if, if you need something. Because I was going to say, like if chris if her friends broke up with her over our advice here and she's sad i was wondering if you could maybe play her a lick <laughs> that would kind of get lift her spirits sure. or something
2: oh here the the sax is out i hope that our our engineer jeff is ready with
6: some reverb okay chris i'm going to play something for you right now and this will hopefully make you feel oh better oh my goodness so oh, here it chris. comes chris this is <laughs> just for you baby <laughs>
0: You won't need friends after that, Chris. Amazing. You can just stay at home listening. But thank it, you for that, Kenny.
2: Thank you. And we're going to just take that 15 seconds, and we're going to release it as a single, and then we're out of the business. That's great, yeah. <laughs> hey, listen,
6: if, I, if that could make money, that would be awesome. I would never leave the studio. I'd be in there all day just breaking it in. Just <laughs> churning out cash. That's Kenny true.
2: G, thank you so much for telling our
6: audience how to behave. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Just come to my concerts, and I do the same thing live.
0: Kenny G's new album is called Brazilian Nights. You're listening to it right now. And side note, you should not only take Kenny's etiquette advice, you might want to take his stock advice. Okay. He was an early investor in Starbucks. Wow. Also, his 1994 Christmas album, Miracles, was the first album ever sold at Starbucks. Jeez. So you have Kenny to thank for being able to buy Dolly Parton CDs with your Frappuccino.
2: All right. And folks, if you're unsure whether you should thank him for that, or if you have another etiquette question, send it to us at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: And now it's time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party-worthy topic. Today our subject is the sense of touch, and our expert is Johns Hopkins neuroscientist and best-selling author of The Compass of Pleasure, David J. Linden. His new book is called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And I should mention that we'll be talking scientifically about many forms of touch in this interview, some of which might not be suitable for younger listeners to hear about. You've been warned.
11: David, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So, I have to ask, how do you feel? (laughs) I feel good. I know that I should. <laughs>
0: well, I'm I'm glad that you feel good, but I guess maybe I should ask how does one feel because this is the topic of your book.
11: Yes, absolutely. So, our our sense of touch is actually many different highly specialized micro machines in our skin, some for pain and some for itch and heat and cold and pressure and vibration and fine tactile form, and all these streams of information come through the nerves into the spinal cord and into the brain, and then ultimately they segregate into two fairly different systems. One is called the sensory discriminative system, and it's just all about the Mm -hmm. facts. Where on my body am I being touched? uh, How intensely? And what is the nature of that touch? And then there is a second system, which is the emotional touch system. Hmm. And that's the one that gives touch its particular emotional tone. It's what makes a caress feel good and pain feel bad. So if I understand correctly, when something happens to us, one system
0: will feel the pain, but then another system will tell us Ouch, that hurts. Yes,
11: that's absolutely correct. When you feel pain, it feels like a unified sensation. You don't feel Mm. it like there's an emotional part and then there is a discriminative part and you you can separate them. Pain feels intrinsically bad, but if you sustain damage to your brain that destroys the emotional pain circuitry in a place called the posterior insula, then you will have a syndrome called pain asymbolia. And pain Hmm. asymbolics have no emotional pain feeling at all. So, for example, if they whack their thumb with a hammer, instead of going, oh, heck, oh, that hurts, the way someone would normally, with a negative emotional reaction, they would just go, yeah, that hurts. That hurts a (laughs) lot. It's throbbing (laughs) now uh, with a a very flat uh, uh, voice. Do you feel like this sense gets
0: less attention than the sense of sight or the sense of hearing?
11: Yeah, I think people take it for granted. And I think part of the reason is because it's always on. You can mm. close your eyes and imagine being blind if you're sighted. You can plug your ears. You can pinch your nose shut. But there's no way to turn off your touch sense Uh, through some act of will. And as a consequence, we just think of it as always being there. But it's absolutely profound and central to our human experience. And what's neat about your book is when
0: people do begin to think about touch, we think about, oh, this is something that would be hot, or we think about pain. But what you tell us is touch also does many other things like it shapes our first impressions. Can you explain that?
11: Yes. So, One of the first things when we meet someone and we want to form an impression of them rapidly, as we are very good at doing as humans who've evolved in social groups, one of the first things we want to determine is, is this person warm or cold? Are they friend or foe? Should I trust them Mm. or do I need to be wary of them? And that is really the hot-cold dimension. And what was shown in an interesting experiment is if you have someone hold a hot cup of drink versus a cold cup of drink immediately Mm -hmm. before they are reading a job resume. If they are holding the hot drink, they rate the person as warmer, more sociable, more cooperative, more trustworthy uh, than if they were holding the cold drink. It's not that you're just rated better in every way. Those people aren't rated as more serious or more intelligent. They're just rated as warmer. Wasn't there another study where uh, someone had a
0: clipboard and if the clipboard was heavier the person was thought of as more serious and had more gravitas?
11: Yes, literally more gravitas. That's absolutely <laughs> right. They
0: they, they had they were a weightier person. This is why I gave you a strong, handsome, charming glass of water when you arrived in the studio
11: today. <laughs> oh, so. oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good move.
0: Thank you. So as much as we are learning about touch, uh, it comes as a surprise to learn that we still don't really understand not how sex works, but how the genitalia
11: Uh, relates to touch. I I find find that hard to believe. So people can have sexual contact through all kinds of parts of their bodies, and people can have an orgasm all kinds of different ways, Mm -hmm. not involving the genitalia. But there's something special about the genitals. These places produce the strongest, most reliable sexual sensations. Mm -hmm. And so you might think, all right, well, what happens if I look under a microscope at the structure of the skin in those locations? Would I see something unusual? And the answer is that it's not obvious. There is one kind of nerve ending there that has a great name. It's called a mucocutaneous end organ. And it is likely to be the source of of sexual sensation, but we don't actually know for sure that this is true. Uh, when you think about it, sexual sensation in the genitals drives so much of our human behavior and is so important in our human culture. Yeah. And yet, we don't actually know what cell does it. It seems like there would be no lack of volunteers to do this sort of research. So do, do you have any hope that we're going to figure it out? Well, you know, the volunteers, it turns out, actually are mice. Oh. Right? Okay. Because, you know, you've got to cut up the tissue. I you know, I don't think you're volunteering, okay, no, you I'm know, not. to put it on the block, right? <laughs> that's right. No, that's right. Maybe
0: there's some Moyles who you could work with who could help you. That,
11: you know, I never thought of that, but uh, that's a strategy. It's like the Moyles said, it won't be long now. Until we discover how that works. Okay, sorry.
0: <laughs> that was my borscht humor <laughs> portion of our interview. Um, yes, I heard so- got tipped off to that. <laughs> Touche. David J. Linden, his new book is called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And he and I will be performing this weekend at Kutcher's Country Club and Silverman's <laughs> Riverview Hotel. Oh, wow. I'm just kidding. Good. I am actually going on a joke
2: fast this weekend. I'm holding you to that. <laughs> Folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download for this week. We've got to get out of here quickly before the tomatoes <laughs> land. Our producer is Jackson Musker. Nina Patak is our associate producer. And Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Engineering assistance this week from Charlton Thorpe. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Michael Cronin is often seen performing with his fellow garage rocker and friend Ty Siegel. But over the course of three albums, he's distinguished himself as the poppier power rocker of the two. His new album, MC3, just came out, and he's on tour now. Here's a track called Made My Mind Up. Bon appetit.
0: For attending the dinner party, download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and I'm
2: Rico Galliano. Hey, man, what's uh, wrong? I'm sad. The show's over. Dis- Jackson, deploy the Kenny. <laughs> but you know what? Life's an adventure.